Living Heritage, a show about people who are engaged in the heritage and culture sector, all those who keep heritage alive at the community level. I'm Natalie Dignam. Today I'm talking with Dr. Dan Peretti, one of the new faculty members of Memorial University's Folklore Department. Dan grew up in Algonac, Michigan, and studied film at Grand Valley State University in Michigan. He went to Indiana University to study folklore and began studying holiday celebrations and history. Dan moved on to researching mythology and narrative and focused his dissertation on Greek mythology in the United States, which included a lot of popular culture. He combined those interests in his book, Superman in Myth and Folklore. Welcome to the show, Dan. Thanks. Uh, so you did, uh, well, you wrote a book about Superman and popular culture and folklore. And on this podcast, we deal with uh, people from all sorts of positions in heritage and culture in the province. So I thought we could start off and talk about what is folklore in an academic sense? How would you define folklore? Which is a big question. <laughs> yeah, it is. And it, it's an interesting question. I always, I always find people's answers to be interesting because everybody's got a different one. And mine is a pretty... Uh, theoretical one, I think. It's a folklore is a pattern in your mind that happens because of exposure to tradition and because of your own creativity. So when you hear a story, you, you that lodges in your brain in some way, and you forget parts of it, and you remember parts differently than other things happen in your brain that makes it possible to perform it. And so the pattern becomes manifest in performance. Uh, definitions I use in class when I'm teaching, like an introductory class, is as I, I like. The, the old Dan Benhamus answer that folklore is artistic communication in small groups because it, it emphasizes two things that differentiate it from popular culture. And that is the small groups excluding media and, and the artistry. Mm-hmm. Uh, not that popular culture is not artistic, but it's a helpful way to start. And then Praveena Shukla, who was one of my teachers, used the art of everyday life. And my definition, um, it works for me, I think. Yeah. And I think that kind of bridges well also into my next question, which is what is popular culture and how, uh, how does popular culture, how do you study it within folklore? Like, well, how is that different from folklore? Those two things. Well, the, the concept I use is that folklore is fluid because of that performance aspect and that it, it basically has to occur in performance. And there's a whole lengthy discussion about the role of a text, especially a, a transcription in the study of folklore and what it means to do that. And people argue different sides of it. And it's a really interesting discussion. Uh, so that's, that's where I'm coming from is the idea that folklore is fluid because it's, it's performed. And so it's never the same twice. Whereas popular culture has quite often a play button so that it's recorded and that is considered the standard. Um, now, of course, it doesn't always work because, especially with something like music, you got people who perform over and over and over and over, and it's always a little bit different, and there's no play button, and you're not opening a book to see the same thing over and over again. Um, mm-hmm. So that's that's my starting point, is that idea that pop culture gets becomes fixed through a recording, either in print, uh, video, audio, all sorts of different ways. Uh, that... That was where I started with Superman because to answer the other part of your question is the relationship between the two. The idea that folklore becomes popular culture is pretty standard. You can recognize it. Uh, the Brothers Grimm hear these stories. They write them down. They're no longer folklore f- for the book, but they get revised, and, of course, they change over time, and they did several different editions. But I wanted to go the opposite way, so I also found 
popular culture that became folklore, which was to say that people started performing it instead of just reading Superman comics or watching movies. So that's that's something that that I wanted to do because there's not much of it done. Um, and I was interested in, like, what happens to something when all of a sudden people start performing it. And what kind of performances, uh, I guess, are, are you talking about when people are taking Superman and performing it in their everyday life? Well, it's not always every day, of course. Uh, and I, I chose as the center of my book a particular performance that happens every summer at the Superman celebration. It's a little town called Metropolis, Illinois, right on the Ohio River, the southern point of, of Illinois. And there's about 6,000 people there. And every June, 30,000, 40,000 people show up because they all like Superman. And they just hang out for a while. But it starts off with an opening ceremony. It's a small town festival. So they've got rides, they've got games, and all of that stuff that you can find a lot of places. But it also has this Superman element, uh, which is all that's like people go there who never go on the rides of course they're just there to talk to friends uh, they don't even talk about superman all that much they're they become this community and so i got them to talk about superman but they were there to be with each other and what i saw was this opening ceremony has a little drama where superman arrives to save the day because some villains are attacking something and the last one I went to, which was actually just two months ago, uh, was a bank where they, they robbed the super museum. So they, these, these criminals, they were all dressed like they were black and white. And they drove up in a car and they ran inside and they stole a safe from the Superman museum that's in town there. So it's different every time, the story. It is. It's different. Uh, and I talked to the people who wrote some of them and I talked to the actors and they, you know, they have a script, but no one really sticks to it that a hundred percent because it's hard and this is, they're not professional actors for the most part. So they show up and they've worked on this throughout the year because they always know when it's the second weekend in June. So it's always going to happen. Um, different people get involved at different times and they have an official Superman who plays the role in that, in that skit. And then they have people who play Lois Lane, uh, the various editors, Perry white from the, the daily planet. And there's different villains all the time. And the only input they have from DC Comics is that they're not allowed to use invented characters. They have to use people who are from the comics. Uh, and that I wrote about a little bit um, because it was a factor one year. The first time they introduced one of their own characters, they were told not to do it again, which I thought was really interesting. That is really interesting because you would think kind of in a in a independent festival almost... You would think it would be the opposite, that DC would not want them to be taking their storylines and stuff. Instead, they're, they're like, don't make up your own stuff. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I wasn't able to get a hold of them to talk to them about it. But uh, were the, all the, the actors and the writers were fine with that. And there's, there's also a fan film component to it. So there's always a little film festival that goes on with this. And so they introduced that character in films and did other things with it. And he shows up every once in a while in other things that aren't official. So the opening ceremony is official, mm-hmm. uh, but the rest of it is not. There's a lot of costumers. So that, that's one, that's one element of performance. Then you've got the costumers, handmade costumes. And there, there's a whole performance to that. Um, just walking down the street is a performance. And it got really interesting in light of their goals, these costumers, and what actually happens to them, and the space that occurs around them. 
so you get someone these are amazing costumes they're in fact sometimes better than the stuff in the movies um, because the stuff in the movies is often enhanced digitally and things like that so you get the man of steel he didn't wear a cape in a lot of those shots um, so these guys have to solve problems and so that's what you look at it as is a sequence of problems created by an unreal image in a comic book or a digitally enhanced image in a film and they try to replicate that mm-hmm. and you can't do it sometimes so they they come up with their own things and if anyone's ever seen like a pictures from a comic con or, or gone to something like that like people really do make amazing yeah. costumes and yeah like you said you're kind of going off either like a comic book character or something that's illustrated or a cartoon or something that's CGI'd so mm-hmm. yeah so they have to deal with gravity um, this, the material capes are made out of will sag and will look wrong so they have to find exactly the right material they also have to deal with heat and they don't have a trailer to go to like a lot of these actors do and they don't have tents with air conditioning and it's 100 degrees what is that 34, 35 degrees uh, Celsius, so it, it's it's really a problem, yeah. And they have to solve all these problems, and then it all builds to a costume contest on the final day of the celebration, the Sunday afternoon. That's become more than just standing up and showing people your costume. It's a it's a drama. Uh, each group or each individual will get up in front of judges and a big crowd, and they will perform a little bit to show their devotion to these characters. and And the judging is based not just on how the costume looks, but how they present it. Uh, that was something I didn't write about very much, but it's 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 really intense and competitive, and it's it's really fun to watch. So, does everyone dress as Superman, like men and women, or? Yeah, uh, well, I, you get everything. the The great thing, the one thing I loved above all else about this celebration was its inclusivity. They they love everything, anything you do. You don't have to make your own costume. You don't even have to dress up like a superhero. Uh, there's a masquerade ball. You can dress up like anything you want, and they're just happy that you're there. I don't dress up as anything, and I went to it, and they were just excited. They're just People are, are happy. <laughs> but Superman is the most common one, uh, but you get everything, every different version of Superman, all the villains, all the, the rest of the Justice League, uh, everything. So when you were talking to people, what did you, uh, what kind of stories did you find that had attracted people to come to this festival or be so... Uh, I guess, like, into Superman. Well, people like his morality, above all else. They really appreciate someone who will try to do the right thing no matter what. And that's what gets them into the comics or the movies. The movies inspired people because of the music. The old 1978 movie with Christopher Reeve. His performance and the music and the size of it on a screen uh, really got people into it. And he saved people's lives just by, by sometimes just one line. When Lois Lane is talking to him, interviewing him for the newspaper in that movie, he, he says he's a friend, and people respond to that. People who had no previous interest in it would watch the movie and change their lives. The, so the morality and the attitude combined with a system that they could analyze and get into. So you read the comics and you can really figure out where his home planet was. All this stuff is appreciated by people. You can get into its history, what his father was like. That kind of thing is appealing in a lot of ways. Uh, something that, that is really deep. I mean, you can go into 80 years of continuous publication and find all it's kinds of It's a whole universe things. at this point. It's yeah. not just... The Superman movie, and it's continuing, I think, uh, 
to there's so many superhero movies like in in the theaters and stuff and is that <laughs> something you were thinking about when you were uh writing this or is that something that has kind of caught your attention at all well it has because you can't avoid it if yeah. you're interested in film you can't avoid superhero movies right now when i started it was actually 2009 and there was not much going on there were batman movies being made at that time and i think the first iron man movie had just came out uh, i wasn't paying a whole lot of attention to it i i started this project because i thought it was an interesting way to study a joke that i came across um while i was reading just different completely unrelated things i noticed some parallels to certain mythological ideas and a superman joke and that started off, and then I went to the celebration and realized that there was a whole, there was at least one book there. Um, yeah. I left out hundreds of pages that I wrote. Can that, you tell us the joke? Do you remember it? Oh, of course. Yeah, I wrote you know, 25 pages about, the joke? about that joke. Um, <laughs> it's, I'll give you the, the short version. I recorded a version that was told to me at a comic book convention that was, I swear, it was five minutes long. Um, he was just, he knew he was being recorded. And so he was playing it up, and it was actually a really good version. But this is this is a shorter version. It's a guy walks into a bar that's one of those bars on the top of a skyscraper. You know, there's a little balcony. You can see out over everything. And he sits down and orders a beer. And another guy walks in and orders a warm beer from the bartender. And he just chugs it as fast as he can. And then he walks over to the edge of the balcony and jumps off. And so the first guy runs over there and watches him float down gently and land on the ground. And then the second guy comes back up and orders a warm beer and does it again. And the first guy watches the same thing happen again. And so the third time, he asks the new guy, he says, what's going on? How can you jump off this, you know, 50-story building? And he says, well, it's a combination of an updraft created by the, the layout of the building and the warm beer making your blood lighter. And so you can float on this updraft. So the first guy says, I'm doing it. He orders a warm beer and he chugs it. And he jumps off the edge and he splats on the ground and dies. <laughs> and the bartender says, Superman, you're a jerk when you're drunk. <laughs> that was the joke. So you went 20, is, did you do 25 pages in your book or was this a separate project? That's, in the, in the final book, I did a chapter on humor. Mm -hmm. uh, so that maybe took up two or three pages where I mostly was analyzing the differences between some online versions that I found and some that I recorded. Uh, during my field work and discussing, you know, the, the idea of, of why Superman is a bad guy in the jokes, because there are other Superman jokes as well. And he's never a good guy. He's, really? he's, uh, yeah, he kills people, you know, by trickery. He rapes people. He does awful things in oh, the jokes. Yeah. And so that to me became the interesting thing, not the mythological parallels. Um, yeah. And so that's the stuff that didn't, that got trimmed between drafts. Mm -hmm. Uh, so that was the start was I realized, well, here's this, this thing that becomes folklore and the jokes are all over the internet, but I was also able to find lots and lots of people who knew them and who tell them and the things they're interested in, um, were not things I thought about. And then that's the other thing that folklore does that a lot of other disciplines don't do is you become interested in what other people are interested in. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's why I like it because I don't think of these things. <laughs> I, I hear a joke about Superman and the Invisible Man and Wonder Woman, and I don't think, well, the important thing is that the Invisible Man is not a DC Comics character, so the joke doesn't work because because he's not, you know, he's an old, what, H.G. Wells character. Yeah. 
So that that was the interesting thing to a lot of comic book guys. Um, and I would go to comic shops and just hang out and talk to people and see what they had to say about these things. Um, and the the internet too is kind of a whole talking about folklore. Uh, the internet is just like a a whole new field of folklore, I guess, because the mm-hmm. digital performance is. Um, you know, something that's being studied a lot more now. So did you delve into that online fan base at all when you were doing this research, or did you kind of stick with what people were doing out in the world with each other interacting? Oh, yeah. I read so many message boards and websites that are just devoted to Superman, Superman homepage, Superman new, uh, just all these websites where you've got a variety of materials. Uh, The most interesting thing to me were the forums because that's where you've got the discussion. But I, I would also watch the videos, you know, parody videos of the Superman song where, uh, you know, the theme music from the old movies where someone would write lyrics uh, to it and perform it for YouTube. Uh, and those things are great. Uh, I didn't have much to say about them because I wasn't focused on that element of it. But it was also mm-hmm. good to find, in some ways, confirmation of what I was thinking about. Yeah, and I find that I, I've read quite a few papers where uh, people are like going into internet forums and even using kind of software to search keywords and how mm-hmm. often people are using keywords. And so it's it's not something that I would think of as folklore, but it is. It's just a very different way to study it when you use the internet. And it's like you kind of have the whole history amassed for you. And you, mm-hmm. can just, you could just get lost in there. Yeah, one thing your comment makes me think about is that we make these distinctions, folklore and popular culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, people don't in general they don't care i was recording some stuff my family was talking about and they actually got out an old tape recorder that they had and played a tape of the same people sitting around a table talking about the same things 40 years earlier and they were playing songs on guitar so they were performing and they would go between italian ballads that i I didn't even recognize and beatles songs this was the 70s right Uh, without any comment um, to a folklorist, that distinction is interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, but to them, it's just all they're, all what they're doing. It's just having a good time. Yeah, I spoke with uh, Aiden O'Hara on the show a f- few weeks ago, and he did a lot of research in Newfoundland on the Cape Shore, and he went out and recorded a lot of music here. And he said he sort of ran into the same thing where he was trying to record what he thought of as traditional songs, and people would go from playing something that they learned in a magazine to mm-hmm. something that they were like, my grandfather taught me this, so you're right. Like people don't distinguish between these these sectors that in academia, I guess we try to define. Yeah, for the most part, they don't, and then occasionally it will become important, um, and that's usually when something's about to change. Mm-hmm. So the the things they recognize as traditional get lost. Someone dies, mm-hmm. and so they try to piece together certain things, and they use a, they use different media to do it: uh, photo albums and old things that people wrote down and. Um, so it's it's important in different ways and at different times, the distinction. Um, so so these old Italian ballads would have been something that they might have tried to preserve, um, but you know they don't need anyone to record Beatles songs for them. Yeah. So yeah. so it's it's a it's contextual, I guess, is the way to think about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so. Uh, now are you, are you working on anything new focusing on popular culture? Yeah. Yeah, I um I started about maybe a year ago uh the Santa Claus project. Uh and it, it 
it happened because when I was doing my, my doctoral work um, on Greek mythology in the United States, I kept coming across superheroes as things that people called mythology. So that, that led me to Superman in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And, and studying Superman, I came across a large number of comparisons to Santa Claus. And then I started noticing that in the shows and the movies and things like that, in the comics especially, uh, Santa Claus keeps showing up. You know, Superman will take over for a particular Christmas because Santa's busy or he's out of commission, so he has to deliver all the presents. And and these comparisons kept coming up, so I decided I would look at Santa Claus a little bit. And the history and the behavior um, just kind of blew my mind where Santa Claus really comes from and what all that stuff is. It is as very part of like it. grim fairy tales in a way where it's like much darker when then you watch the Disney movie and you think it's yeah. one way and then you look into the history and you're like, this isn't what I thought it was like at all. But can you talk a little bit about what you found of where Santa Claus really comes from? Well, he comes from the New York Historical Society. Um, there was this fervor for patron saints sweeping through the colonies at the end of the 18th century. Um, you know, England had St. George and Scotland had St. Andrew and Ireland had uh, St. Patrick. And so the colonies decided we need a saint. And in Pennsylvania, there was a lot of attention to St. Nicholas at the time. And, and so the New York Historical Society, uh, they decided on St. Nicholas. And and they had a lot of influence on in what was going on in, around holiday celebrations because they were very, very, very close with the church. And with a guy named Washington Irving, uh, who... You know, some of the Santa Claus scholars say there is no Santa Claus without Washington Irving, who wrote a series of of essays about Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, um, things like that, for mm-hmm. his sketchbook, um, which includes stuff like uh, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow and Rip Van Winkle. Um, really popular book. And he happened to be very good friends with Charles Dickens. Um, so these guys really cemented Christmas through literature as much as anything else. But the New York Historical Society, which Irving joined, they really encouraged Christmas among people around the time, especially after the Revolution, which is when Irving was part of it, of course, in 18, 1810, 1820, 1830. Um, so that was interesting to me because then you get that poem, The Visit from St. Nicholas, which yep. everyone knows is the night before Christmas. Um, that was written about people being really loud outside uh, Christmas Eve, <laughs> uh, which is a really interesting perspective on it. He just kind of wanted people to be quiet. <laughs> yeah, wait for Santa and go to yeah. bed. <laughs> That's so, really interesting because I guess uh, this would be folklore because I don't know where I heard this, but like the, the connection between St. Nicholas like in the Scandinavian countries of being kind of like a guy who'd come down around with a stick and like punish children and like mm-hmm. the u.s uh version of santa claus but looking at history they're they're pretty different yeah uh and people in scandinavia will claim santa claus as their own say we invented him uh but of course saint nicholas was from turkey uh and santa claus is an english term um it gets really complicated the, the things you're talking about are it's off it's sometimes santa claus it's sometimes an associated figure like black peter Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes a very similar idea, um, Belsnickel, which was also part of American celebrations, um, and that was very stick-oriented, <laughs> hitting people and whatnot. Wait, so what was that? I don't think I've heard of that before. Uh, yeah, it's it's something I haven't gotten to much yet. It's an it's a different character. I think it even showed up on the uh, the sitcom The Office for a while or during one of their Christmas episodes. 
Uh, Richard Bauman writes about it a little bit in a book uh, collected or an edited volume about festivity. And I can't recall the name of it um, offhand. It's been a while since I've read that one. Um, but it, he's he's kind of a wild man figure. Um, Santa Claus is it borrows some of the imagery of the old wild man going back a long way. Um, so he would he's a disciplinary figure. Yeah. Um, kind of like the Krampus. Yes, that's what but I was thinking. But he doesn't kill people <laughs> like the Krampus yeah, wants like to do. Yeah, the scary Santa. That's what I think of as Krampus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and St. Nicholas, um, not Santa Claus, would fight him. You know, he would come and oppose him in some of the old stories. <laughs> so he wouldn't drag kids through the river and drown them. And things so it like is that. kind of a superhero, which I never thought yeah, of Yeah, before. you can. And, and comic books have, have made him a superhero. Um, in fact, one of the, the guys who became... One of the more prominent Superman writers, his name is Grant Morrison. He's doing a whole series called Klaus, which is about Santa Claus as a superhero. I have heard of that. That's pretty good stuff. Uh, so what, I guess one thing I was wondering, too, is are you going to go about this research kind of similar to how you did the Superman? Because everyone knows like a, like a 5K that everyone runs in a Superman costume or like... I know in upstate New York, there's like a whole Superman festival, or not Superman, uh, Santa Claus festival, and everyone dresses yeah. as Santa Claus. So have you found those kinds of, um, I guess, fan performances? <laughs> <laughs> well, my interest is in all of it, and it's really hard because there's so much. I thought Superman was a big topic, and of course, Santa Claus goes back a lot longer, and there's more celebration of it. So it's mm-hmm. a harder thing to narrow down. So I'm... I'm going to try to do a combination of all that. Um, there are certain places, North Pole, Alaska, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. It's really popular in New York, obviously, and you could go just about anywhere to do it. Uh, my interest is Santa Claus as a legend ritual complex, um, and it's performed. Santa Claus is ostensive in the way that people study legends, where adults every year perform Santa Claus for their children. And that's a fascinating thing. And they get, they get excited about it much more than children do in some ways. Um, and so they, they go to great lengths to preserve this fantasy for children. Um, and to the extent that children will often, often, um, lie about believing in him long after they've stopped in order to appease their parents. Right. And there's kind of this whole debate, I feel like, even when you're young and you're like, I shouldn't believe in Santa Claus anymore, and some kids, like, still do, and then your Mm -hmm. parents are like, but don't tell them. (laughs) Right, yeah, there's that dynamic between siblings and between kids at school, you know, where one kid realizes it or learns that Santa Claus is just your parents. Uh, I I hesitate even to say that he's not real because there's real stuff going on here. Yeah. Um, So someone learns the truth, whatever that really is, and tells everybody in his class, and then kids go home and confront their parents and I know kids who have been angry that they were deceived. I know other kids yeah. who are excited because now they know the secret. Um, and they can, they can be Santa Claus for their younger siblings. So it's a really interesting generational and intergenerational and intragenerational dynamic going on here. So that's my main interest at the moment. Uh, and I gotta figure out how to study that. Yeah, because there's so much there. You're looking at uh, family traditions. You're looking at legends. You're looking at Santa Claus as a figure through history. It's a mm-hmm. huge topic, really. That's <laughs> even even before you get to consumerism and advertising and yeah, like literature. Yeah, Coca-Cola, and, mm-hmm. which everyone knows that one. But. Yeah, yeah, they had a huge hand in, in, I think, cementing the image 
of what Santa Claus looks like. They took old images, of course, from, from advertising. A guy named Thomas Nass drawing pictures for magazines in the 1860s, and they, they eliminated a lot of the excess there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can also take it... A lot of people call Santa Claus a myth, which is an interesting perspective. Uh, I don't agree that it's a myth. I think it's an interesting legend that has... And that boundary between myth and legend is really hard to define sometimes. Um, so I look at it as different perspectives. Now we're going to look at Santa Claus as a myth, and that gets you into consumerism. Mm-hmm. Now we're going to look at Santa Claus as a legend, and that gets you into family dynamics. Yeah. So it's, it's not a hard and fast boundary. Um, so I... It's hard to decide what a book would be like, so you got to start small. You start. I'm going to write an article on, you know, the fieldwork I'm going to try to do next winter with uh, families. Start there. Cool. Well, it looks like we are actually running out of time, but uh, thank you for coming on and talking about your research today. Oh, thank you for having me. This is a lot of fun. I'm Dale Jarvis. You've been listening to Living Heritage, a production of CHMR Radio 93.5 in collaboration with the Intangible Cultural Heritage Office of the Heritage Foundation of Newfoundland and Labrador. Find us online at ichblog.ca or on iTunes. Our Heritage Broadcast Assistant is Natalie Dignam, in partnership with the Conservation Corps Newfoundland and Labrador ECHO program. We would love to know what you think of the show. If you have a question or a suggestion for a future program, leave us a comment on the Living Heritage Podcast Facebook page, email livingheritagepodcast at gmail.com, or tweet us at HFNLCA. Thanks for listening.